Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Point of Descent. Today, I've got a special guest in store for you, Nick Nugent of the Undefined Terms podcast. Nick, welcome. Hey, Sean. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Well, today we are going to be tackling a subject that is near and dear to my heart, and I think it's um, pretty important to Nick as well. Epistemology is what we're going to be looking into. Now, from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is the study or theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limited limits and, valid, and validity. I can't speak. Apparently, we need to do an episode <laughs> on that. Now, the definition I usually use is it's pretty similar, but it's the process by which we justify belief from opinion. Now, why is this important for our discussions? Because we are surrounded by contradictory information. How do we decide what to believe? Now, for the purposes of this episode, we are going to set aside philosophical epistemology because we all know what kind of rabbit hole that could lead to. <laughs> you know, we may not even be actually here having this recording right now. So, for all intents and purposes, we're going to shelve that. Now, Nick, how about you introduce yourself, give us a rundown of what you do on your podcast and any essential details. Sure, happy to. So uh, I'm an attorney in the Seattle area, and one of the things I do in my spare time, such time as I can find, is I run a podcast called Undefined Terms. And the podcast name comes from a book, actually, by Thomas Sowell, who is a Stanford economist, a very uh, famous, I think he's approaching 90 years old now, famous African-American uh, economist. And I mean, the term didn't originate with him, but um, he talked about sort of the importance of defining terms before we have honest debate about topics. So the goal of the podcast is uh, briefly to analyze current cultural, political, legal issues by carefully defining the terms before engaging in debate about them. That's pretty cool. And you, you're talking about a guy that's near and dear to my heart um, within the oh, liberty good. movement. Thomas Sowell is one of the grandfathers up there with Milton Friedman and um, Mises. I enjoy, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to watch him debate and in the 80s. It was so cool, like he would be on Donahue or some of these other shows and just absolutely ripping people to shreds, but with a smile on his mm -hmm. face. And Oh yeah, very likable individual. Yes, he is. And... um Gosh, what is the name of his uh, latest book? I think it came out about a year ago. It, it had to do with, um, uh, I know it had to do with race. I just can't remember what it is, but I think I'm about three quarters of the way through it. But absolutely love that man. Yeah, I picked up a book of his Economic Facts and Fallacies, I believe was the, the book that sort of inspired me. And it, it wasn't even the main thesis of the book. It was just a passing mention, I think, on the very first page. He talked about how we use words like fair, you know, equality, justice. We use them in slogans or, or laws or editorials or debates, and they're, they're rarely defined. And how this, this has a number of consequences, you know, for example, 
it, it can certainly give one side of the debate, and I'm I'm now extemporizing beyond what what he said, but this was all. I'll say it's all in the penumbras of what he, he mentioned in his book, and it's certainly in, in his other writings as well. But you know, if you don't use, if you don't define a term that you use, you can you can quickly gain for yourself an unfair advantage, right? If if you're a politician and you're talking about you, your proposals are going to bring more fairness to the marketplace, you are going to help restore dignity to people below the poverty line. You know, you want to ensure racial justice. That's that's great, but if you don't define those terms, what happens is that your supporters, people who are predisposed to like you and support you, are just going to, they're going to superimpose their own definitions onto those empty vessels that you've created. And naturally, because they're, support, they're supplying their own definitions, they're going to agree with you completely. They're going to say, wow, this guy speaks, or this woman speaks unbelievable truth. What a visionary. Well, <laughs> it's a visionary because you are supplying your definition into their empty vessel. And you could have, and this he does mention in the book, is you could have two different supporters who have completely contradictory ideas of how to define those terms, both believing that that candidate or that spokesperson is supporting their individual viewpoints. That's really, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Um, that's a really interesting thing I, I actually hadn't considered, but it, it leads me down a path of wondering if maybe that is why there's continued dissatisfaction with our politicians, because we have in our idea what they are supposed to do, what they say they're going to do, <laughs> right. but it's only because we have superimposed our own ideals or our own wants yes. and definitions. And that's by design. Right. That that provides a certain plausible deniability when they don't keep their promises. Well, how detailed were their promises really? And how much of it was just our, uh, you know, arrogating to ourselves that we knew what they were actually promising? And, you know, I think Obama was probably the master of this in terms of speaking in, in broad platitudes and generalities. Uh, but I think Trump is probably right up there with him. I mean, there's very little detail in what comes out of Trump's mouth. And so a, a lot of people, um, they find, you know, what does make America great again? What does winning look like? Um, th those terms aren't very well defined. And, you know, it also has the effect, uh, in, a, in addition to sort of rallying the troops who all believe that you're speaking their message, um, you know, kind of like it reminds me, and this is just off the top of my head, so I'm going to get in trouble here, but... Um, <laughs> There's the speaking in tongues, right? And when people talk, talk about speaking in tongues, you know, there are multiple sort of descriptions of what this is. Um, you know, one is you're sort of speaking uh, sort of an angelic tongue or whatever. But another from the book of Acts is that one person is speaking one language, but everybody else is hearing it in their own language at the same time. That is what I mean by this particular use of undefined terms where everybody hears it in their own language. Um, but, you know, to return, that's that's the supporter angle for the the opponent angle. It also lends an advantage in that if your if your opponents oppose you, if other people oppose your candidacy or your policies, they are branded anti fairness. Right. They are anti dignity or against justice. They're bad. Who wants to be anti fairness? I don't want to be anti fairness. I don't think you do either. No, I don't think anyone wants to. And. That's another excellent point. It's it makes it very difficult to even overcome that because yes, what is fairness? What like you said? What is make America great again? In what regard? Financially great? Economically great? Um, you know, independence, political, 
it could be anything, but it's particularly nebulous. And I think you're right. It's by design. It's exactly what they can use to control us. It's very vague. So more people become invested in exactly what they're saying. Yeah, and when you're invested in what you think they're saying, and when another person is invested in what they think they are saying, and, and there's a there's a debate between two camps, you know, liberals, demo, you know, liberals and conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, or any any two schools. It, it doesn't have to be just politics. It could be an academic debate. It could be a debate about water policy. I mean, it could be anything. But you know, when you don't define your terms, you have this additional consequence that you're going to have people screaming at each other. Uh, convinced that the other side is is an ism right you're Mm -hmm. a a racist a sexist a your sensorial protectionist or or whatever but because neither side is bothered to define bothering to define their terms you're you're never going to make progress because each side is just going to assume the worst about each other actually did you do you ever watch bill maher i have from time to time not often though yeah i occasionally I, I will as well and I don't I don't think I ever just go and, and watch a show directly but I saw this uh, you know sort of over the and this is about a year old but I saw these clips uh, surface where you know, there's a spat between Bill Maher and James Corden about about fat shaming uh, Bill Maher goes on his show and talks about how how poor diet is the leading cause of mortality in the United States which Many people don't realize that it is, you know, especially in the age of of COVID. And his point was that you shouldn't be insulated. We shouldn't be insulated as a society from criticism against overeating, against unhealthy dietary practices under the umbrella of shaming. And he made this quip. He said, you know, fat shaming doesn't need to end. It needs to make a comeback. And it was delivered in your typical Bill Maher fashion with sort of plenty of jokes and, and snide remarks. And, it, you know, data interspersed in there as well, but very much, you know, Bill Maher shtick. And so then Corden, James Corden comes on, not, not the same show, but James Corden on his show delivers this rebuttal. And he says, you know, let's be honest, fat shaming is just bullying. And, and people who are overweight, they know they're overweight. And they don't need to be made to feel bad about themselves. And so he delivers his quips and, and, and calls Bill Maher all these names. And, you know, both, side, both sides had their, their audiences hoot and holler at their, their humor, at the savviness of their points. But what was amazing to me about this exchange was that neither side bothered to define what fat shaming is. Or maybe a better way of putting it is that they're both operating on completely different definitions of what fat shaming was. Corden's definition was fat shaming equals making fun of people who are overweight. But Bill Maher said, no, we shouldn't taunt people about it. And, and his definition was, was not being uh, sort of stymied in our ability to have an honest conversation because we're afraid that we're ever going to be labeled as, as shamers. And so I was just, I watched that whole thing just amazed at how much comedic material and and self-righteous material was generated over the fact that two people were talking about completely different things. I think that if they actually sat down and and tried to align on a definition, they'd probably agree on 99%. Uh, you know, the what they meant basically is that we should be able to, to honestly talk about it. Um, but, you know, you're not going to get that sort of drill down into the details of definitions over talk shows. You're just not. 
Now they don't have the time and they need to make sure they have that, that punchiness, that draw. And most people aren't interested in watching that kind of stuff. They want to see combat or, or, or at least their, their particular, the group that they hate being made fun of. But it's interesting. You're, you know, we're talking about undefined terms here and all the chaos that that creates talking literally past each other because we're talking about two Mm -hmm. completely different things. But there's also another component of this that I think that I see a lot where you both agree, let's say, what racism is, but the definition is changed by (laughs) one person because they are an affected group and they have the ability on the fly to change what defines that. So now suddenly what wasn't racist is now racist. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example. I, I can't think of any better example about where definitions are crucial to debate and where manipulation of definitions are more destructive to debate than in the area of racism and race relations. I mean, and, and I'll just put you on the spot. I hope you don't mind. But how would you define how would you define racism? I would define racism as taking a negative action or having negative thoughts about a group of people based solely on their ethnicity or melanin content. I think that's I think that's a pretty good definition. I think that's probably what most people in society regard as racism. But if you look at most dictionaries, it's a little narrower than what you've said. Most dictionaries sort of align they sort of align on on it being a, a belief in the inherent superiority or inferiority of people based solely on their race. And so you you know you talked about sort of inherency of race or or I should say you talked about it being based solely on race, but I think what true racism as it's been traditionally defined is that it's it's an inherent superiority or inferiority irrespective of their actions, right? Mm-hmm. And what what is interesting about that, and this is to sort of tie it back to what I do as a lawyer and what, what lawyers are taught to do in law school, you know, we actually don't learn the law, not that much in law school. I mean, you do, but you learn it along the way. You know, you learn what statutes say. You learn, of course, about the Constitution and whatnot. But fundamentally, law school is about teaching a very basic skill. It is the skill of defining things. And when you define things, you find that they're defined by elements, Right. So in this definition of racism, a a belief in the inherent superiority or inferiority of people based solely on their race. That sounds like a single definition, but it it has multiple elements. So it's a belief in the inherent. That's the first element. Something is inherent. And two, superiority or inferiority of people. Three, based solely on their race. So three elements. And the way that you secure a, you know, conviction for example, for breaking a statute, for breaking the law, is within a statute, within a phrase in the law, you can always break it down to elements. So, you know, take, for example, take, for example, murder, right? Murder is defined as the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. That sounds like a short phrase, but there are actually five elements in that. It has to be unlawful, right? If you're in, if you're in combat, you've killed someone, it's premeditated, it's a human being. It's by another. You got all, you got those four elements, but it's not unlawful because the law doesn't prohibit it. it. Has to be premeditated. If you're in the heat of an argument and a tussle, and you kill someone, it's not murder. It might be homicide, 
but it's not murder. It has to be a killing. If you punch someone and they had a pre-existing condition and you meant to punch them, you really did, but it was a, uh, you know, and they died, they ended up dying four years later from, from those injuries. And there's sort of complicating factors in between. You can argue, was that really a killing? It has to be a human being, it has to be another. So five different elements. And in order to be convicted, the prosecution has to prove each of those elements one by one. And a good defense lawyer is going to sort of argue because they only have to win on one of those elements. They have to say, yeah, you showed that it was unlawful. You showed that it was killing. You showed that it was by another, but you didn't show that it was premeditated because it was in the heat of a battle or uh, it was it was unintentional or, or whatever. It's it's the, the art of, of, of lawyering and of, of debating is fundamentally a boring science, a boring science of breaking down a definition into its constituent elements and then arguing marching through the elements one by one to, to make arguments. And so, you know, just to bring this back to race, you know, take, for example, uh, you're walking down the street at night and it's, you see a man of a particular race approaching you. And so you decide to cross to the other side of the street. Is that, is that technically racism? Well, it, is it a belief in the inherent superiority or inferiority of someone? I would say no. I would say it's it's a prejudiced thinking. You might think, well, this race has a statistically higher likelihood of violence than another race, which might be wrong, might be wrong, but you might subjectively believe it. And so you're choosing to go to the other side. But you're not coming to the conclusion that this person approaching you is actually inherently superior or inferior because of their race. Right. Or let's say that you believe that, um, you know, Hispanics are harder working or Asians are more studious and diligent in, in college or in, or in academic settings. Does that make you a racist? You're making a judgment about uh, superiority or inferiority of people. Right. That's element two. And yes, it's it's based solely on their race. That's element three. But you don't believe it's inherent. You don't believe that they are harder working or more studious inherently because of their race. You think it's cultural. It's because of how they're raised. It's because of their community. So that too is not racism. I'm not, I'm not saying that any of these things are therefore good or that there's not wrong thinking involved, but you can't call them actually racism if we all align on a common definition. And I think that's the hard part is coming to that common definition. Sitting here listening to you talk about um, like the studiousness of Asians, for instance, as a part of their culture, you know, no one is going to, at least I, I say no one, most people would not say that that is racist because you're not thinking that thinking down of another race, but you're actually putting them up on a pedestal. Typically mm -hmm. when you hear someone denigrating a racist, it's because they are looking down upon another race and elevating their own race above theirs. But it's interesting when you put it that mm -hmm. way, because technically, you know, it meets as many elements as the other definitions go. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought of that. So if you, again, our three elements has to be inherent, right. has to be superiority or inferiority of people, and three, it has to be solely based on race. So if you just believe that, as a white man, if you believe that Asian, Asian men or Asian people or Indian are inherently superior, just better people, does that make you a racist? You're not actually elevating your own race, you're elevating another race. Technically... 
that would fall under the definition of racism under those those elements but I doubt anyone on social media would call you out for it now they may call you out for being narrow-minded and groupthink and then you know just attributing broad characteristics to individuals yeah. which I think is yeah is wrong in and of itself but usually when we hear the term you know we think of it in a negative context but I guess it does go both ways if it's defined that way we just never hear it like that you know yeah yeah and you know the the thing that's interesting about defining terms is that you don't have to be right I mean it is it is you want to be thoughtful about it and the best thing that can happen is when two sides get together I mean the process of defining terms and then walking through the elements one by one is is a sort of boring task I mean I find it interesting but then again um, I'm not a normal person uh, <laughs> the reason why people self-select into law is because they can deal with the just uh, that is the attention to detail the the boringness of of detail of just pouring through detail over and over again to arrive at at, at answers um, that's why lawyering can be a very boring uh, field to many people it's not the exciting stuff you see on television dramas but um, if two people were to sit down and have an honest debate and say or let's say two people who are screaming mad at each other calling each other all sorts of epithets and then they were forced at gunpoint to uh, come up with a joint definition of a term before they started, before they continued their debate. What you would find is that it would take them probably an hour of conversation to align on, on a, a common term, a common definition, common set of elements. And by the end of that hour, it would be very difficult for them to hate each other. Because when you get really into the weeds of analyzing an issue, you can't really characterize the other person as a black and white Nazi, as a black and white racist, as a black and white, you know, um, fear monger or, or whatever. It, you find that you agree about a lot more than you disagree about. And that process of just defining terms and getting to what the details mean is a profoundly unifying activity. It de-escalates the situation just because of how long it takes, but also you find that you agree about a lot by the time you're done. That's interesting. I've never considered it that way. I know, like when I debate online a lot, and you know that's atypical in and of itself. I think it's different when you're face to face with someone, so that you actually have that human interaction. But I find the vast majority of disagreements that I have are based on definitions, like you're saying yeah. there. And the process of going through those can sometimes get. It, it's hard to disengage the emotional side of it yes. where okay well this guy's trying to force his definition of of whatever this word is on me so I'm automatically going to reject it and it can be difficult but I do agree with you in that if we could come to a consensus on a lot of the language that we use I think a lot of misunderstandings that we have and a lot of hatred that's misplaced that we have would evaporate yeah and, and you know you don't even have to come to alignment you don't even have to come to alignment to use the power of definitions to to chill in a good way, to chill debate and to come to common understanding. What I try to do, and I don't always succeed because I can be just as hot-headed as the next person, but what I try to do, if I've got someone that I can tell is just, you know, just, you know, in a tissy, just, just hot as, as hell, I, I will try to stop making statements and I'll start to just pivot to just asking questions. So, okay, you're calling me 
uh, greedy. You're calling me, um, you know, um, uh, you know, apathetic to the needs of, of such and such constituency or group or race or whatever. Okay, let's assume you're right. Constantly, you know, I, I try to say, let's assume you're right. Let's, let's take what you say at face value. You know, and I just start asking questions. Would you say that this person is also wrong in how they've approached this? Or, okay, so what's your definition of greedy? What's your definition of you know, apathetic toward this constituency? What's your definition? And I will try to draw out detail from them. And then they'll throw out a few, a few, you know, answers. And I'll say, okay, so you're saying it has elements X, Y, and Z. And they might say, okay, yeah, fine. It has elements X, Y, and Z. And I'll say, okay, okay, fine. Then under your definition, you do understand that it also would we would demonize this thing and this thing and, and you don't follow it because of this why this reason and this reason and they'll say oh well okay it, it's not just xyz it's also w you know don't forget w w is very important and i'll say okay well we'll add w to it and then you know i'll do the same thing and by the time you know by the time that that we finish having the conversation the the definition has gotten so long and complex there's so many different elements that it's very narrow and it's really hard for them to use that as a weapon against anybody else. And, and even just the process of working through them and taking them at face value, I find that it diffuses a situation. So, you know, in a certain sense, you don't even have to align on a common definition. Just the act of setting up a definition, whatever it is, and figuring out what its elements are, and then marching through them one by one and, and having a debate is profoundly illuminating and will, will dispel a lot of heat in, in an argument, I think. One of the, and it's, a, I think, a similar methodology, um, but I enjoy using the Socratic method, which is exactly what you're talking about, where you're asking questions. Yes. But for me, and maybe I need to pull your method into mine, mine is to expose where the contradictions are in their beliefs. Like, okay, yeah. well, you believe that. Well, what about this? What about that? Well, don't you realize that now you are... Um, <laughs> in confliction with your original statement. Do you want to change your original statement? Let's revisit it. And yeah. most people get so frustrated with that process as you're, you're, you're literally grabbing them by the collar and taking them down to their bedrock. And a lot of people do not like that feeling. But no. when I'm trying to change a mind about, um, let's say, the authority of a government or any of these other hot topics that I have, I find that by doing this, it leaves kind of a ringing in their ears afterward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a day or two, I'll get a message and says, Hey man, you know what? You're absolutely right. I, I can't think <laughs> of a way out of this. So, all right, show me where the next path is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds exactly right. And, you know, I, I've, I think it was implicit in what you're saying in your tone of voice, um, but just to make it explicit, I think central to that that method of debate is you have to you have to. Well, there's a famous quote, and I I don't remember it off the top of my head. I should look it up. But basically saying, um, it is the most important thing in debate is to always leave a graceful exit to your your opponent, right? You know, so much of debate, like for example. Um, I like Ben Shapiro. I, I think I, I don't. I'm not completely in the tank for him, but he's a very smart guy. He's a he's a Harvard trained lawyer. Uh, he can think on his feet. He's, he's sharp. He's funny. He can go overboard. He can straw man. He can. I don't always agree with him, but um, one of the things I really dislike about 
his his media company, I think it's called um, Daily Wire, is they'll post these these videos on YouTube. You know, Ben Shapiro owns leftist professor. Ben mm-hmm. Shapiro owns this, destroys feminist scholar. And I'm just thinking, and that's kind of how Ben Shapiro stick. Like he's so good at debate, he's so sharp on his feet that he can just you know bring someone to a puddle by destroying them uh, in in a debate. And that's impressive. That's good theater. But I don't think, I don't know how that wins him, that wins him a convert to his way of thinking. Because nobody is going to join you if you've just decimated them. They're just going to, they're just going to dig in their heels harder. Nobody, you know, because now their pride is at stake. And so, you know, and I don't always do this either. But when I'm debating someone, I try to leave a path, even I try to play dumb at times. Like, you know, like I never thought of this third way, which is actually the way that I supported in the first place for them to say, oh, well, okay, there's this exception. I guess I can think of it like this. And suddenly they've exited it gracefully to my side without, without me sort of owning them. And that's not because I can own anybody. I I debate, certainly not. Um, But you have to be, you have to be willing to, to get called names. You have to be willing to um, allow the other person to come there themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. You absolutely do. And you're right, though, that style of debate, when I first kind of went down this path, that's what I was after. I was after just destroying (laughs) anyone that I came up against with facts that they could not detract, uncrackable principles. Yeah. And the reality is you don't win any converts. Now, for like your Ben Shapiro style, I think the only thing he does is cement his following that already agrees with him yes. that they are on the right side of the debate. Because, yep. you know, their guy, their hero, their Rocky Balboa, if you want to look at it that way, is out there yeah. kicking the crap out of everyone. So that must mean I'm on the side of right. Yeah. And there's a place for that. It takes all types. You know, I don't want to say that this format of debate or this method of defining terms is canonical and everybody should follow it. It takes all types. Um you need you need warriors. You need fighters. You need, you know, you need people to just make snarky, sarcastic remarks on Twitter that are just that go to the point. You know, just go for the jugular and in a single two hundred and forty character quip. Who can do that? Um, I don't have that talent. I try to be funny and witty and incisive on um, on Twitter, and it usually fails. Uh, I'm more of a long form guy. Um, but you know, again, I, I, you have to recognize the limitation of that debate style. And I don't think he does win many converts. I'm sure he does. But, um, you know, maybe the benefit is that it heartens his followers. You know, they they feel emboldened. If, if he's fighting, I can I can fight, too. And, and that doesn't it goes for the same for people on the left or people in the center. Um, but I don't think we're at a shortage of people willing to go out and throw punches. That's that's the thing. You know, I think we're at a shortage of people willing to be reasonable. Yeah, all I got to do is get on Twitter for about 10 minutes and see that <laughs> in, in that cesspool there is no shortage. And I also battle on the side of um, looking at religion and all religions. Yep. I, I'm an atheist as well. And it's interesting that you see these people that rise to the top that are very gifted at their particular style. But what I enjoy is when they come together and put their styles together kind of like a, a Voltron okay. and you see it in politics. <laughs> you, you see it in, in good debate. Um, the one that comes to mind would be the four horsemen within the, the debate against uh, the Christian God, uh, Sam Harris, who's still alive, 
Daniel Dennett, uh, Richard Dawkins. Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens, yeah. He's the only one that's not around anymore, I believe. But Mm -hmm. watching them debate, especially together, helped me cement my disbelief. I know usually people say belief, but in this case it would be a disbelief. But each one of them had a particular style. You know, Christopher Hitchen is very flamboyant and very, what's the word, very quippy, I guess is a great way of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, he can turn a phrase in an artful manner. Yes, absolutely. But actually, if you were to take his argument style, he actually committed a lot of fallacies. But mm-hmm. because of the art, you never really noticed it. Yeah, Yep. Yeah, you you can be so such a skilled you know order, so skilled with your rhetoric that it papers over, uh, it elides over key details or, or gaps in your in your manner of argument. Um, you know, and I see that on on both sides. We don't want to be taken in by the art or the theater of it. Yeah, and that's what politics is. It really is, and you know, um, you know, I, I think speaking of Twitter, I. You've heard of Marshall McLuhan's um, famous adage that the the medium is the message. I think that was also in Neil Postman's book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that you can't really get that serious on Twitter. The medium itself is the message. We want to say that the message is this pure thing like like ether, you know, <laughs> that just uh, transcends. The, the, you, you can have the same message, the same content in, in any medium. It's just the container. It doesn't matter. No, the medium really is the message. And a sitcom uh, contains a certain, I mean, that was the sort of example that um, Neil Postman used because that was the, the dominant form of entertainment in, in his day. Um, but I don't think you can ever really be that serious on Twitter. Um, it almost demands, it almost requires like a sacrifice that you sacrifice your, your detail and your thoughtfulness and your, your measured nature. You know, you must sacrifice the demon God of, of Twitter in order to participate in, in the, the discourse there. And, um, you know, so much of, of the problem with Twitter is, is the limitation and your inability to, to really lay out facts because so much of debate requires an intimate knowledge of facts and a lot of them. And, you know, you do these podcasts and I do mine. And, and uh, you know, at first, perhaps the, the biggest challenge was the audio editing and all the technical stuff. But that's the least of my worries now. The, the, the greatest of my worries is the three, four, sometimes 10 hours of research that I'll put into a one hour discussion because you have to actually know what you're talking about. And, and so few people do, they'll read a few headlines and they'll think that they're suddenly an expert on, you know, critical race theory <laughs> or, uh, you know, the Trump impeachment scandal or, or anything like that. Um, I mean, people de- devote their careers to very minor things in, in, in academia or in law or any, any type of, of discipline. And the idea that we can really speak intelligently, intelligently to any subject after knowing just a fraction of the facts is, is laughable. Yeah. Uh, that- there's going to be a terminology, I think, in our future for this phenomenon, like this thumbnail theory, where yeah, that's is a good way of putting it. Their knowledge from the snippet that you know, I don't know if you run a web website or not, but you can control what the snippet says, which is that part that pops up on the shorthand of for an article, and it may have nothing to do with <laughs> the actual content of the article, but people see that. Our sponsor this week is Surfshark VPN. 
If you're looking for a way to secure your online data and browsing habits, enjoy Netflix as if you were in another country, or just simply to make sure your IP address can't be traced to your physical location, you need a VPN. Surfshark VPN fulfills every one of those needs, and because it's top rated by TechRadar, PC World, CNET, and PC Mag, you can rest assured Surfshark has you covered. If you use our link, you can start enjoying the security of a robust VPN for only $1.99 a month if you choose the 24-month option at checkout. That's over 80% off, but they're only offering it for a limited time. That link is porcupinepov.com forward slash VPN, or I'll just go ahead and include it in the show notes for you just to make it easy. And with that, we'll head back to the show. Did you see? Oh, I'm, I wish I would have pulled this up. Did you see the, the um, you know, all the talk of this chatter about this Washington Post article this week that says Trump says the most dangerous cities are run by Democrats. He, or, Trump says dangerous cities run by Democrats. He's wrong. Okay. Oh, that's an that's an eye-catching headline, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. that's what a false claim. He's been caught. We've caught him. We're going to fact check him. We're going to show you how that's completely wrong. And then within the first paragraph it's like most cities, dangerous cities are run by Democrats, but not all of them. <laughs> not all of them, okay? We found one out of 100 that weren't. And I'm not I have no dog in this fight whatsoever as to which party runs the most dangerous cities. But it was it went made the rounds on social media because it was so laughable that they shaped that headline just just right. And then the very first paragraph contradicted themselves. I mean, there are people whose entire job, they are professional headline uh, editors. That's their job. (laughs) And they know how to grab attention. They know how to make someone look like an idiot, especially their political opponent in a headline. They know how to. They know that some few people are going to read the article, that they'll see the headline and think they get the gist of it. And so you can say a lot in a headline that is very um, deceptive, doesn't represent the content or the facts at all. No, it's a lot like, and we'll come up with this on the fly, but it's like one of those really shitty Chinese buffets where they've got the name tags right in front of all the dishes and you're just kind of scrolling, going by real quick. You don't know if that's actually chicken chow mein or if they, they've got the right <laughs> thing there. But on Facebook, we're just scrolling through the thumbnails and we're getting an idea. We, we just want the most concise idea of what this uh, article entails yes. so that we can move to another one, to another one, to another one, and just yes. overload on information that's incorrect. M- make it easy for me. I want to invest one second, maybe three seconds, maybe three seconds of energy into understanding the content of a subject. So give me one second headline that I can read and I'm going to scroll to the next one. And, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, uh, we did an episode on the podcast about uh, Tara Reid's allegations against Joe Biden. So you remember there was the uh, Christine Blasey Ford's allegations against Brett Kavanaugh when he was being uh, vetted for the Supreme Court and it was just all over the news and plastered and people were saying, believe women, believe all women. And, you know, there was variability in what they were saying, but that became the standard, just believe women. Um, and then Tara Reid comes forward and makes these allegations against Joe Biden saying, well, he sexually assaulted me and can't I be believed as well? And everybody's like, whoa, 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 we got to look, let's look, look at all the facts. Let's not rush to judgment on this. <laughs> and I, you know, I agree that that's a fantastic standard. I wish we'd apply it, have applied it in Kavanaugh. And I, I again, not no, have no dogs in this fight. I think there was some evidence for Kavanaugh, some evidence for Ford, whatever. The point is, um, uh, I'm off tangent, <laughs> but the point is we did an episode on the podcast where we said, all right, all right, 
let's not have any dogs in this fight. I, I brought on a lawyer friend of mine and we took a look at the Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden. And we um, we had five elements, you know, contemporaneous evidence, uh, character evidence, subsequent evidence, uh, plausibility, etc. And for each of the five elements of the debate, I flipped a coin. And if it landed heads, I had to take Tara Reid's side and my friend had to uh, take Joe Biden's side. And if it was tails and the situation was reversed. And so this forced us like like a high school debate club. We we got assigned our, our position. We didn't get to choose it. And we had this debate back and forth. And so for every single element, you heard the, the argument from both sides. And I thought that was a, uh, an interesting way of, of analyzing the issue. And I learned a lot from the process. And so um, I posted that on Facebook and I had like 450 comments and like 56 shares. And I was like, wow, yes, they've finally seen the brilliance <laughs> of my podcast. The world has finally come to its senses about how valuable my podcast is because look at this this traction you know if i've got this many comments and shares i must have like twenty thousand downloads and it was my downloads were like a fraction for that particular episode and i i came to realize as i was reading the comments because you had like conservatives and liberals on there and some conservatives were like you know she should be believed biden's a creepy old man and people like what about trump and you're 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 democrats and stuff like that and it was it was like this flame war. And I don't think a single person that commented on the thread actually listened to the article. They just saw the headline and just started commenting. I'm like, what's the point of that? What's the point of that? I think people are just looking for things that either seriously challenge their beliefs or reinforce their beliefs. And they just run with it. Uh, the Bubba Wallace thing we were talking about right before the show that's a yeah. great example. When that came out, you had one side that was screaming, yes, this has to be racist in nature. It's because yes. we told them they can't have Confederate flags at a NASCAR race anymore. <laughs> then you right. got the they other rebelled. side screaming that, okay, we've got another Jesse Smollett here. This guy obviously put this in his uh, in his garage because he's a shitty race car driver and he, he needs to get whatever... Um, Whatever attention. attention, that's the word I'm looking for, thank you, that he can get. And people were just going at it. And then the FBI, FBI comes out with their investigation results, and it's neither one of the two. So now yeah. both sides are pissed off. <laughs> well, and I don't think everybody has even grasped the fact that it's neither. Because when um, when it was found that the the rope, I don't I don't even call it a noose because I don't think that that's been determined that it's a noose. I think there's a decent argument that it was just a rope tied in a, a figuration that looked like a noose. Um, but when it was found that that rope had been hanging in that precise manner, in that precise knot configuration for since 2019 in the, in the garage and that Bubba Wallace was was randomly assigned to that garage, um, people are saying, ha. This proves it was a fake hate crime. It was a it was a staged hate crime. It was a hoax. No, it doesn't prove that, because how could he stage it? Did he did he go back in time and 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 put it there, knowing that a year later he would be assigned there? All it shows was a rush to judgment on everybody's part. It doesn't show that it was a staged hate crime. Exactly. And as of this morning, you and I talked about this as well. But I'm gonna bring it up for the listener in case they don't know. The idiot that runs that speedway decided it would be a great idea to sell Bubba Rope on um, Facebook Marketplace, which Jeez. is a rope in a noose configuration. And as you can imagine, <laughs> the terrible. outcry has Gosh. been bad. And 
already teams are talking about boycotting the speedway but god we're not very intelligent creatures are we no no we're not um uh it's uh it's yeah confirmation bias you know we we all just want to hear stories that um that feed our our preconceived notions and 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 uh tell us what we already know about to be the worst about our our political opponents and um you know i mean one of the things that i think is really valuable and um uh indeed it was it was a part of that episode that we did about about tara reads is that we randomly through the coin flip assigned positions that we had to take in debating on the podcast and um and I've, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. It's this concept of steel manning, right? Where um, we, we've all heard of straw manning. It's where you set up your opponent to look like a complete idiot. You take their worst arguments, you'll the weakest facts, and you even put them in, in ridiculous terms and add a silly voice to it while you're at it, right? What's, what's a good argument without using a silly voice for your argument, for your opponent's arguments? And then after having set up that poor defenseless straw man, you just, you just beat it down and torch it. And, you know, all of your, your friends are, are cheering at how you owned your opponent. Well, that's, that's entirely dishonest. It's entirely deceptive. Uh, I don't think it has integrity. And so steel manning is the, is the antonym of that, where it says, all right, let's, let's take my opponent's points and let's find his best argument. Let's, let's help him make the best argument against me, against my position. And one of the things you'll find is that it, it you have to do a fair amount of research to really uh, figure out what your opponent's best arguments are, and it takes time to craft that. And then by the time you finish, basically, you know, one of three things will happen: either you will um, you'll understand your opponent's arguments well enough to defeat his best. Right? You're, you're you're beating Goliath at this point. You're not beating you know the 16 year old ruddy kid who just you know signed up for the the Philistine army yesterday. You're beating Goliath. And then, you know, you truly win. Uh, but that's fine. That's a real victory. Or you, um, you know, you, your position becomes more nuanced. Like, oh, well, you actually have, do have a decent argument. I, I guess it's somewhere in the middle. Or you actually completely switch sides by the end of it because you realize that your opponent has a, has a decent point. But unless you take the time to, in a good faith manner, try to help your opponent, I just, you know, it's, it's hard to have a lot of stock in, in our own uh, conclusions if we haven't taken the time to really understand and help our opponents. I have two children, and I've spent a great deal of time teaching them, especially my oldest one, my young youngest one, still fairly young, but don't make an argument if you can't argue the opponent's side. And until you yes. can argue the opponent's side as well as they can, you have no argument because you do not understand where your opponent's coming from. And I find that by still manning, usually that is how I diffuse an argument because I'm showing yeah. that I understand where they're coming from, but I'm also taking a potential weapon out of their quiver, so to speak, because typically people will just rely on the fact, well, you don't understand where I'm coming from and then just walk away from the argument. But if you show you actually do, they can't fire that at you. Yeah. Yeah. If you can say, if you can say, okay. Here's here's how I understand what you're saying. You're saying that my policy is wrong because of A, B, and C, and that I'm failing to consider such and such, and that the real cause of such and such problem is is this. Is that is that accurate? And you, you know, with no you know, no sort of ulterior motives of I'm gonna make it sound ridiculous. Like, have I fairly characterized your argument? 
And what they'll probably do is they'll come back and they'll tweak it. And they'll say, well, mostly, but actually I would add this. You say, okay, okay, great. And then, then you recap it with their tweaks. And you say, okay, so you're saying precisely this. Is that your argument? And at the point where they've said, yes, that's my argument. Then I think that's, that's the right time to say, okay, I understand. That's a decent argument, but here's what I think you're missing. And then you come back with your rebuttal to that. I think you'll find that they might not agree with you in the end but they don't think that you're a jerk. They don't think that you're uh, misrepresenting their point. You, you, they, they're gonna appreciate the fact that you invested the energy to understand them on their terms, on their words, uh, not putting words in their mouth. Um, I, th- I think you actually have a decent shot of winning a convert at that point. You have a much better, um, much better chance than if you do it Ben Shapiro style and try to own whoever it is <laughs> that, yes. that you're dealing with. Now, there was a question I wanted to... I'm going to roll back just a little bit here. Um, we were talking about... Yeah, what's your second question? <laughs> what second question? I'm just saying um, we've been talking for how many minutes? Uh, oh, okay. 40-some minutes of your first question. So <laughs> what's your second question? Um, one of the things that you and I talked about was um, like this mining of snippets of data in order to make broader claims, so to speak, where you're looking at the individual components of something that happened that you're trying to prove or disprove. And I know that you said that that's a tactic that lawyers use, but do you think that the same tactics are being used to create laws? Meaning like a legislature is looking at a broad deal, a a problem I'm doing the air quotes here and is picking and choosing components that will help them sway people when there's actually not a problem there they're creating it so that they can create a law. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I think, in a word, yes. <laughs> I mean, in a, yes, that, that absolutely happens. Um, I mean, you can make the data say anything you want. What, what's that famous line that there are lies, damned lies, and statistics? <laughs> um, you know, you can, um, you can selectively, selectively cut from a, a, a large data set to, to prove a point. And, um, you know, for example, I, I think I mentioned, um, you know, you know, I talked about this before, but, uh, you know, I, the Chaz protest in Seattle, right. The Capitol Hill autonomous zone. I mean, I had been reading about, you know, basically like I'm exaggerating here, of course, for comedic effect, you know, grenade launchers and, you know, people being, you know, put on their knees and their heads chopped off and, you know, forced to salute the BLM flag and, and everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is a really scary place. I want to go see this for myself because I don't have any good judgment. So I went there <laughs> and I toured it and it was like, you know, people handing me flowers, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, asking me to meditate with them on the cement. I mean, it was, yeah, it had graffiti, it had, um, you know, homeless encampments, but it wasn't anything like I had read in the conservative the conservative media and my best analysis from just my touring is that probably what happened is that the conservatives were exactly right in everything that they said there's no lie in their report of Chaz. they just chose to focus on the most incendiary facts that they could find but those aren't necessarily representative uh, of the whole thing and and that is exactly what you'll see i think in proposals for legislation or it doesn't have to be legislation it could be any type of policy that a that a, a politician is advancing um they want to paint a picture. They want to, they're going to show you the most um, salient facts, the most um, heart-wrenching facts, or, the, or the, the worst, scariest things about the opposition. And um, it's a form of lying. It's a form of deceit. There's, there's no, no doubt about that. 
Um, uh, I mean, does that answer your question? No, it absolutely does. I just, you're more involved with the law than I am. You know, as an anarchist, we don't really, we're trying to dissolve as many as we can. So <laughs> as you can imagine, I try to avoid any kind of uh, legal altercations that I can. But I, I figured it has to be because when you watch let's say a political debate or you're looking at the campaign ads, there's always things that they pick and choose from. And these are the oh, key yeah. phrases for a particular demographic that represents a large voting block. Yeah. And hearing you talk about that's how you go about defending a client or um, not defending, um, convicting a, a client or whatever you're trying to do. It was interesting to overlay that on the actual lawmaking process and see a correlation there. And I wanted someone that is actually involved with it to tell me I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. Uh, you are crazy as an anarchist for having a lawyer on, but uh, otherwise on this particular point, you're not crazy. <laughs> I probably will get a little bit of flack, I, but honestly, I mean, it, it's something we need to be involved involved with. And even within an anarchist framework, there are going to be legal protections. You know, I, we don't want to mm -hmm. go around and shoot people in the face just because, you know, the vast majority of anarchists that I know and I interact with, we would probably have less laws, but a lot stricter laws because most stuff is going to be mm. contractual in nature, you know, 100% okay. voluntary. And here it is. It is in black and white. You signed it. I signed it. There's no getting out of this deal. There's no gray area, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I sort of lean that way. I sympathize with that a lot. I, I, I very much agree in the power of, of private contracting as sort of setting, setting private rules. I, and this is very much off topic, but I, I tend to view that as, as all political affiliations should be voluntary and people mm -hmm. should be free to leave. That's why I do believe in, um, you know, um, secession, really for any cause the, uh, obviously the south was was horribly wrong to um uh you know have slavery but um irrespective of that i i just believe that any any political affiliation should be voluntary in the long run and um i mean it's complicated as to what the type of, of divorce would look like but um i i, I agree with that um but you know the thing i, I think that the cure for the cure for selective uh, sort of presentation of facts. I think it's easy to think that the cure for selective presentation of facts is, well, we just need to be honest and lay out all the facts. And that's true, but that's that's like the gold standard. That's like the holy grail, where we just talk about all the facts and we get it all on the table. People, that's just, I think that's often asking too much of people. We should strive for that. But people are biased. I'm biased. Everybody's biased. And I think that in some ways, I you know, to bring it back to law and lawyering, I think the adversarial method is a very helpful tool for getting at truth when you have selective presentation of facts. You know, um, have one side argue uh, one side and then bring in someone to argue the other side and, and they'll expose where what facts weren't weren't brought up by, by the first person to speak. You know, um, I, I think it's, I, I'm going really off tangent here, but, um, <laughs> You know, every once in a while you'll see, and I don't see them so much anymore, but I would see, you know, studies 
challenging climate change. They're saying, oh, this new study shows that the Earth is not warming any measurable degree more or more quickly than um, previous eras or would have been modeled without carbon emissions, etc. And and therefore, you know, this whole global warming thing is is a hoax. It's a myth. And someone will say, ah, but look, look who, who commissioned that study. It was commissioned by the oil industry or it was commissioned by these Republicans. It was commissioned by so-and-so, and, and they, they have a vested interest in the outcome. And my response to that is, who cares? Do you think that the people writing the pro-global warming studies are you know, completely angelic in every single one of their motives, that they have no result that they're trying to drive toward? I say, let every single biased party who wants to weigh in on the debate. I don't care if they're biased, I, I, because you have enough biased people participating in the debate We'll find the flaws in each other's arguments. We'll we'll bring out the facts. That's a good thing. I completely agree with you. And that's um, one of the things, and we're going to, I guess, go back a little bit with the racism thing and some of the legal protections. Uh, we've talked about on our podcast many times how I much prefer to know that a person is a racist than to have them hide it. I want them to be okay. open about it. I don't want there to be when I say social consequence, I mean, I, I don't want there to be necessarily like this Twitter storm and cancel culture. I mm -hmm. want people to be comfortable with saying, okay, you know, I've got this particular bias because at that point we can enter into an actual debate and try yeah. to change minds. But the thing that scares me the most is let's say it's Johnny's tire shop down the road and he absolutely hates um, white guys like me and because he can't say anything and because the law precludes him from denying me service I inadvertently am a patron and I'm supporting him by oh, buying services there as opposed to being able to know that hey this is some bigoted asshole and I really don't want to spend my dollars there oh I see yeah sort of the the, the honest scoundrel yes yeah yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, it, it'd be great if we kind of all laid our cards out. Um, there's a certain certain group think, or at least group speak, that we can't say the unpopular belief that we have because we're too afraid uh, of cancel culture. Um, yeah, that's that's a great concern. It is, uh, and and where you're talking about getting these arguments out, there's a lot of these arguments that are never had. So these people yeah. sit here in silence, and their beliefs are being reinforced by their own echo chambers and there's none of us that are in opposition that are even getting an opportunity to try to dissuade them from whatever platform there was but if speech was more open i think yeah. we could you know bringing it back to the beginning have an opportunity to define terms and come yeah. to some semblance of agreement i guess yeah i mean the marketplace ideas the whole philosophy behind the cure for bad speech is more speech is 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 that when an idea is not permitted to be spoken because the consequences are so severe and and you know those words were uttered when the consequences were you'd get sent to jail for for uttering certain words i mean those are the supreme court cases you know when the states were actually outlawing um you know anti-catholic speech or you know and un unpatriotic speech and you know, I think it was Justice Brandeis said, no, no, the cure for bad speech is more speech, not enforced silence. 
and and if you read more of what he said, the reason why is because let's get the bad speech out in the open so we can rebut it. Because if you have someone who, who cannot speak the bad speech, and let's say this is just a plainly, um, to bring it back to racism, this is just a plainly ridiculous, silly idea that some races are inherently superior or inferior to others. Um, if that if that idea can be brought out and discussed, like give that person a platform, go ahead, put them on a stage at University of Berkeley, let them make their case. Because then what's going to happen is then they're going to put on the next person who's going to analyze what they said and rebut it point by point by point. And what that does is that the, if otherwise that idea is left to fester in the dark, damp shadows where like mold, it can continue to grow. And these people who've been deplatformed and marginalized for society, like feel like victims are just going to more and more radicalize, more and more believe that they are, are oppressed because uh, people are fighting their truth. Um, you know, there's so much value in bad ideas coming to life and being discussed in order to rebut them and prevent other people from not buying into them. I agree. Um, the rot continues in the dark, so to speak, and the damn. Yeah. And, you know, this just listening to what you have to say, it would be, it would have been interesting to see. Um, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago where you had on the college campuses speeches getting canceled because, yeah. you know, the students didn't want them there. I think it would have been more effective to take the methodology you're suggesting where, okay, no problem. Milo Yiannopoulos, you can speak, but we're going to schedule our speaker immediately after yeah. that's going to take this, you know, point for point and actually rebut as opposed to let's pull a fire alarm and never hear what they have to say. Yeah. Do you, you know, and, and sometimes, okay. So what was that? That was an event. Um, do you remember this? This was like a year and a half ago, I think. Um, maybe it was two years ago. There was that actor who used to be on the Cosby show. He played the character named Alvin. Okay. And um, someone spotted him working at Trader Joe's. And so they snap a picture of like, hey, remember this guy from the Cosby show? Look, he's working at Trader Joe's now. And the subtext was, what a loser. What a has been. I mean, he used to be on TV. He used to make maybe millions of dollars. And now he's working at Trader Joe's. Ha ha. And this was posted and this went viral, not because everybody was piling on because everybody was a jerk, like the person who snapped the photo and posted this because people were saying, what a jerk you are. This person is, is working a job, making an honest living. Yeah. So he's not on, on TV anymore. Yeah. He's not a movie star, but he's making trader. That is an honest profession to be a sales clerk at Trader Joe's. And there's, that is the dignity of work. How dare you insult the dignity of work? And the backlash from it, I think, did more to promote the dignity of work than if the bad speech, the, the bad guy who snapped the photo had never posted that, not giving the people a chance to have a, a national conversation about the dignity of work. No, you you're... see, it, it benefited the counterpoint. Absolutely. And there's probably some people that silently agreed with the person that snapped the photo. But when they see all all the conflicting or contradictory um, backlash, to use your word, it may have changed their minds as well. Maybe yeah. not the guy that snapped the photo, but it's out in the open and people can go, well, yeah, maybe I am kind of shitty for thinking this. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think the broader concern that I have right now is is this idea that we can't even state facts anymore even when everybody acknowledges that they are facts 
because we're too concerned about what people will do with them. And, and the language that I hear around that is, well, you shouldn't say that because it could be weaponized, weaponized by the other side. So, you know, for example, there was this story, I think this was about two years ago, of this academic paper on the greater male variability hypothesis. This is this is this idea that in biology, if you have a genetic trait, you're gonna have variation in it. You know, some people are gonna be taller, some people are gonna be shorter, some people are gonna be stronger, some weaker, some smarter, some less intelligent, etc. And you're gonna have a bell curve. Um, and most of the people are gonna be in the average, you know, the mushy middle. Um, but men, or male, I should say, not this isn't just about just about humans, but males will have more variation. You'll have more males at the high end of the spectrum and more at the low end of the spectrum, whereas females tend to be clumped together in the middle. Now, if you look at the average, males and females are still about the exact same. But you, on the extremes, men are going to be more populated. So um, this was a paper on a, a, a mathematical theorem to explain the male variability hypothesis. And this, this academic article was spiked. It was published or was scheduled to be published and it was pulled because there was a backlash among, among people who thought it would weaponize uh, uh, sexism, essentially. To say that, oh, the reason why more men are in positions of power is because there are more, they're smarter men. More men who are higher in the spectrum because of the male variability hypothesis, which is a bogus argument, but that's what people were saying. And then so this, this article got spiked. Then it got published in another journal. And then for three days, there was a mob sort of outrage against it, and it got pulled. And it was, it was horrifying to watch because if the article was wrong, rebut it. But to actually pull data, to actually pull mathematical research and, 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 and scientific research because someone out there, some groups out there might use it to support their kook theories, that's a very scary proposition. There's another one I don't know if you've heard of. This one's uh, quite a bit older, but Charles Murray, he wrote a paper about the um, race versus IQ. And okay. the results were such that it, it, if you look at the snippet like we were talking about, that the data showed that you know Asians were of a higher intellect, the Caucasians were below that, and then other ethnicities were were even further below that as well. I'm just paraphrasing here. Yeah, yeah. It caused a shitstorm. And in fact, um, Charles Murray was one of the speakers at a college that was not allowed to speak. And the professor was actually um, assaulted that was yeah. bringing him on. Her, her hair was pulled, uh, neck was, was messed up, sent to the ER. But... Anyone that has ever had Charles Murray on, whether it be a podcast or a show, has seen their career under a lot of scrutiny and in many cases yeah. canceled. Sam Harris, uh, one of the four horsemen we were talking about earlier, brought him on the podcast. Uh, he hated what, what there was to be said, but when he sat down and looked at the uh, research, he's a uh, neuroscientist. Yeah, yeah, Look, he's a very thoughtful guy looked at the research it's like well no actually they're just kind of taking the snippet all charles is doing is reporting the facts and the data as it lies but he's got no yeah. proclivities he's got no 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 horse or no dog in this game i should say and vox um i don't know if you know of vox the the oh, online yeah. magazine oh, yeah. 
went after him, tried to get Sam Harris canceled, tried to get his books removed. It it's crazy. It, yeah, um, Joe Rogan uh, ha- has come under fire for having people like I think I had Alex Jones on, mm-hmm. and Alex Jones is you know a conspiracy theorist, a crackpot as far as I can tell. I've never actually consumed any of his content. I've just read snippets of what he said, so maybe I don't have enough of, a, of an informed opinion. But um, you know, Joe Rogan's philosophy is. I'll have someone on. Go ahead, let them talk. They might be completely spouting nuts stuff, but then let it be debated and rebutted. I mean, at least let the person talk. Um, and and that's that's just really scary that we're going to cancel platforms for having people on. We're going to cancel platforms for not censoring. That's a very scary position to be in. It absolutely is, and you know, tying into our larger um, topic here with epistemology it makes it even harder to know what is real and what is true. What should you truly believe? Because if someone can put their thumb on what is and could be good data or a good idea, but it's being censored, how do we ever know what, what is truly real? Yeah. I mean, I don't expect to see how are we supposed to trust even the stuff that's coming out of the scientific literature. If there there are going to be papers that are written that are never going to be published because they could be weaponized and they say the wrong things, even if the data are correct. And then, but there are gonna be far, far more scientists and academics who are just gonna say, I see what the data is. I'm not even gonna write an article about this. I'm not gonna ruin my career. I'm not gonna go through this. And you're only gonna get data that supports popular narratives. The data, and then what's gonna happen is that's gonna further skew uh, you know, the public perception, like, well, all the scientific data, all the academic literature points to to this, so it must be right. And that's going to be a sort of self-reinforcing mechanism because we don't allow the counterpoint. I don't know what the solution to that is apart from really actually the, the solution perhaps is just courageous universities, courageous media outlets, courageous companies that are willing to take a more neutral standpoint and 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 suffer the blowback, I guess. I'm with you. I think that we're due for a different style of social media, one in that which celebrates opinions that are different, dissenting opinions, mm-hmm. do a little plug there, um, <laughs> that um, prevents people from doing these, I, I'm going to call Twitter storm, but you you know what I'm looking yeah. at there, that tries to silence these voices and opens it up more for debate. Well, okay. You say you have data that supports this. I've got data that supports the complete opposite. Who's wrong here? Or is it somewhere in the middle? But until we empower or at least show these companies that there's a dollar to be made in that type of platform, I don't think the free market is going to give us an answer anytime soon. Yeah. And the problem is that, you know, you have no platform is self-sufficient. Nobody's completely vertically integrated. I mean, these payment these these platforms rely on payment processors. They rely on advertisers. They rely on infrastructure providers. They rely on cloud computing providers. And if they say no, damn it, we're going to take a, a strict libertarian, uh, you know, pro free speech stance as the tech companies used to do. The tech companies used to be the liberals. They used to be the people who allowed terrorist videos on their platform, saying we're not going to censor. Um, but now they are the censors. But if they say no, we're going to be truly open, then 
there are going to be mass boycotts of, of advertisers and companies like MasterCard and Visa saying, well, you can't use us. We're going to cancel your bank accounts. Um, you know, we're not going to provide uh, a Cloudflare. We're not going to provide uh, security services for you. We're going to make it impossible. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really use Gab much, but I'm appalled at how basically people are trying to destroy their ability to operate a free speech platform. It's, it's appalling to me. I um I've been on minds.com and that one I thought was going to be a good example of it. They use cryptocurrency and exchanging yeah. of that is kind of how they they kept afloat. I'm currently using another one called Float F L O T E and it's also a non-censorship kind of place, but in in at least the case of minds a lot of people leave it because the vast majority of people that are there are these ultra <laughs> nationalistic yeah. white power assholes and that's all you see on your feed there's no other voices out there that are trying to combat it so it in, yeah, in of itself in, poisons itself that is the intractable problem with these alternate platforms is that you get the extremists who go to them and then they they you know proliferate there and then the media labels them as well it's, a, it's just a haven for right-wing you know nut jobs and and maybe it is but that's not the goal of it i mean gab tries to be neutral as far as i can tell it's just that right wing you know uh, you know far right people tend to go on there and i don't i don't know what the solution is but i think thinkspot jordan peterson's platform is trying to be more thoughtful down the middle i don't know if it's succeeding well um but it's it's a really tricky problem it is, and hopefully he does well. I, I respect Jordan Peterson. I don't agree with everything that that he says, but I'll give the man credit in that he stood his ground in the face of withering criticism, his job mm -hmm. being on the line. You know, whether you agree with his politics or not, I think we need more people that are willing to stand up for their principles because at least at this point we know what his principles are agreed yeah. or disagreed and now we can enter into discourse and try to change his mind if you're of that proclivity yeah yeah agreed all right well i think we should wrap it up here do you have any other further wisdom to impart to our listeners on how to tell what is worthy of belief or not i would just say there's there's no shortcut there's just no shortcut to the truth it is a function of how much you how many facts you know how long you've spent with the facts how long you've allowed them to sort of uh, ruminate in your mind uh and and marinate and um it's okay you don't have to be encyclopedic you don't have to have encyclopedic knowledge of a subject to have an opinion on it you know i'm not saying you have to have a phd in, in some subject but you have to accompany your opinion with a humility that is proportional to the amount of information you have. If you say, here's my opinion on this, but you know, I really only have 5% of the facts. And if someone presents more facts to rebut it, then I'm, I'm open to changing it. Or if you have, you know, 90% of the facts and fine, you can strongly assert. But I think we just, we just have to accompany our opinions with the right amount of humility in proportion to the amount of facts we have, the amount of time we've thought about it, and the amount of energy we've spent considering and trying to articulate the opponent's viewpoint. Well spoken. So where can my listeners find find you? Find your podcast, Facebook page, all that good stuff. Oh, sure. Um, well, you can go to our website. Our website uh, is being revamped right now, but it, it works. It has all the episodes. It's just the, the, the words undefinedterms.com 
also, you know, if you just search iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, we're on all the all the major platforms. And then we have a Facebook page, uh, Undefined Terms, um, and a Twitter handle. Um, it's all just harping on the same same phrase. <laughs> if I had a recommendation for any of my listeners, uh, the Waco episode is a good starter. That was the first one I listened to, and it was a hell <laughs> hell of a hoot. It was a lot of fun to listen to. But yeah, definitely um, reach out and see if you can find his podcast. Give them a listen. Maybe it's some some subscriptions. If I could speak, you will you will definitely enjoy it. So thank you to each of you that have subscribed and or reviewed the podcast. It helps us get our message out to a much wider yes. audience. If you can find our sorry, you can find our website at porcupinepov.com and at facebook.com forward slash point of descent. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thank you.